listeners. This is Labor Know Your Rights Podcast. I'm your host, Dave. This episode is brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. Contact information can be found in our show notes, including our toll-free number, where you can leave a message, ideas for future episodes, or tell us about events, campaigns, or victories in your union. Please check out Life on Record. family benefits for domestic partners was the UAW's District 65 local at the Village Voice newspaper in New York City in 1982. Pressed by unions and employees associations, several public employers and some private companies added domestic partners to their benefits coverage over the next decade. Reaganomics was finally discredited in Meltdown Monday, October 19, 1987, when the Dow Jones average fell more than 500 points, but the bills remained to be paid. Neoliberals proposed balancing the federal budget with new taxes, deeper spending cuts, and debt repayment. They also called for more deregulation of the international marketplace, especially restrictions on trade and investment. Democratic House leadership fast-tracked Reagan's tax cuts and solicited suggestions for additional corporate tax benefits. After Mondale's defeat, party leaders started the Democratic Leadership Council in 1985 to make the party more responsive to business concerns. Both Dukakis in 1988 and Bill Clinton in 1992 ran on neoliberal policies, and the AFL-CIO endorsed them both. Vice President George Bush beat Dukakis by 7 million votes, partly by promising he would never raise taxes, then lost to Clinton by more than 5 million votes after he did. Neither election changed national economic and trade policies. Both saw the major parties become more dependent on corporate contributions to pay for more costly campaigns. The new economic policy trickled down no better than the old. In 1992, 12% of all families and 22% of all children lived on less than the amount defined as poverty level, including nearly half the households headed by women with minor children. Real wages continued their decline. By 1996, they were 12% less than in 1979. Other components of working class economic security deteriorated. Pension coverage at large and mid-sized companies fell from 91% in 1985 to 80% in 1995, and post-retirement medical coverage fell from 80% to 52%. The AFL-CIO opposed NAFTA, expecting it to cost U.S. jobs and overturned labor laws as restraint on trade. NAFTA passed Congress in 1993 with a vote from many friends of labor in the 1994 congressional election, Lane Kirkland, 
quelled labor opposition to NAFTA Democrats. AFL-CIO political strategy proved helpless when Republicans swept both houses for the first time in 40 years. A study of union drives in 1993 through 95 found that one-third of employers fired workers for union activities. Only once before, in 1894, when Sam Gompers lost the AFL presidency for a year to mine workers John McBride, had the Federation's leadership ever really been in doubt. Interim President Tom Donahue waged a vigorous campaign matching the new vice slate promise were promised, but at the October 1995 convention, delegates representing 56% of the membership stuck with the insurgents, and John Sweeney became the fifth man in a century to head the Federation. Richard Trumka from United Mine Workers became Secretary Treasurer. Linda Chavez Thompson of the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees took a new executive vice president position. The state of the labor movement was grim. 1995's total of 31 strikes by a thousand or more workers was an all-time low. Union membership also declined in 1995 to 16.4 million workers covered by union coat rats. In the private sector, the rate of union density had fallen to the level of 1930. New voice leaders called for organizing the unorganized. The AFL-CIO budgeted $20 million for organizing in 1996, $51.3 million the next year, but more than money and staff were required. Paid organizers signing up workers for NLRB elections on a workplace at a time against employers who had no reason to respect federal or local labor laws could only slow the loss in membership. Unions faced an ever-difficult terrain. After the economy recovered from the 1991-92 recession, the stock market kept raising and profits soared. A new corporate merger wave in the mid-1980s created even larger companies. Transnational investment increased. Foreign direct investment in developing countries increased by half in 1994-97 to more than $100 billion. The North America Free Trade Agreement worked pretty much as opponents had predicted. In NAFTA's first five years, 200,000 U.S. jobs were lost to trade. Deregulation led to a new crisis. The Mexican peso collapsed in late 1994. Businesses failed. Real wages fell about a third as international currency exchange transactions reached 1,500 billion a day. Similar crises hit Thailand, Malaysia, Indonesia, and South Korea in late 1997. Russia and Brazil the next year. The International Monetary Fund and World Bank sought more structural adjustments as the price of rescue from national default, remove controls on markets and investments, sell state-owned enterprises, accept multilateral free trade agreements. Meanwhile, debt crushed some developing economies. Debt services cost Nicaragua more than it spent on all social programs. Mozambique twice as much as it spent on health and education, and Uganda more than five times it spent on health care. Free market policies widened the gap between rich and poor nations. 
Broad areas of sub-Saharan Africa devolved to an economy of meager subsistence and resource extraction, often at gunpoint. The Nigerian government hanged author Kinsaro Wiwa and eight other activists who protested the environmental degradation of the Ogani land oil region by companies like Shell, Mobile, Chevron, and Texaco. The international gap was mirrored in U.S. incomes. In 1990, the average pay of the chief executive officers of the 500 biggest U.S.-based corporations was only about $2 million a year, 84 times the average blue-collar workers' pay. By 1999, the CEO average had gone to more than $12 million, 475 times the blue-collar average in 1999, General Electric CEO Jack Welch made about 15,000 times more than his average Mexican employee. Overall, fewer people made more and more people made the same or less. The trend was accentuated at the extremes. Average family income in the bottom 20% fell slightly in real dollars, while for top 5% average income rose by more than a fifth. By the end of the 1990s, though the U.S. unemployment had declined, income inequality had returned to the level of 1930s. About 100 million acres alongside 36 million people living in poverty. More than 2 million of the poor worked full-time year-round, another 7 million part of the year. By 1998, 2.7% of total private employment fell into the government category. Help supply services, more than four times the 1982 figure. Bankruptcy filings increased more than a third after 1994. By 1997, one of every six families living on $25,000 or less a year paid 40% of their income in debt services. The new AFL-CIO leadership made some changes in the Federation's foreign and domestic policies long advocated by grassroots activists and already practiced by some affiliated unions. The AFL-CIO let lapse its sponsorship of the Canadian Federation of Labor, set up in 1982 to rival the Social Democratic Canadian Labor Congress, when financial crisis swept the Asian industrial economies, a pro-PRO met in Singapore in February 1988 but could only petition international agencies to ameliorate demands for structural adjustments and set up a telephone hotline for the hundreds of thousands of displaced workers. In Mexico, more than 3,000 plants operated in the Micaladora export comes by 1988. As privatization proceeded in long nationalized industries, the official confederation de trabajadores mexicanos lost more than 40% of its members, but the CTU demanded the extermination of indigenous rebels in southern Mexico, not the release of CTM union leaders jailed for opposing privatization. The Coalition for Justice in the Mecaladoras helped Sony rank and file workers in Navo Larado 
contest their official union leadership. John and Sweeney visited Mexico in January 1988, the first such trip since Sam Gomper's demise, and met both CTM and independent union leaders. At home, AFL-CIO leaders turned their attention to the masses of organized low-wage workers. Despite a 1991 raise, the minimum wage had fallen to the 1950s level in constant dollar value. The Federation also endorsed organizing welfare recipients assigned to workfare, but the efforts faltered when most courts decided the workers were not employees covered by the National Labor Relations Act. Some unions' habits were hard to change, despite years of federal and state prosecutions that had removed almost 400 Teamsters and more than a hundred labor or officials by 1996, some unions still harbored mobsters or tolerated personal corruption. Officials from the carpenters, painters, and longshoremen in New York City were convicted of embezzlement and racketeering during the mid-1990s. The president of the hotel employees and restaurant employees retired in 1998 to avoid prosecution. New Voice allies fell too, though not for labor racketeering. Sweeney and Richard Tram is a strong supported Teamster president, Ron Carey, or challenger James Hoffa Jr. in 1996. In June 1997, a federal monitor avoided Carey's re-election after finding that his aides had washed $700,000 in union funds through Democratic Party accounts to pay campaign expenses. Kerry was barred from the union, and Hoffa won the new election held in December 1998. AFSCME trusted New York City's District Council 37 in 1998 after officials were accused of embezzlement. It transpired that district staff and local officers had also faked ratification tallies to get the 1996 contract approved. Helping Republican stayer Rudy Giuliani Winning re-election during the lawsuit brought by dissident local members in 1999, SEIU forced the retirement of Gus Bev Ona, president of New York City Building Services Local 32B through 32J, and at 422,000 a year, the highest-paid union official in the country. At the end of 1999, New Voice supporter Anthony Coca who had backed anti-corruption investigations ordered in a consent decree resigned from the laborer's presidency and pled guilty the next year to avoiding taxes on a Ferrari provided by the Rhode Island company that leased cars to the union. Unions continued to merge in 1995. The United Rubber Workers joined the United Steelworkers and the International Ladies Garment Workers and the Amalgamated Clothing and Textile Workers announced their merger into UNITE. Union of Needle Trades and Industrial and Textile Employees, the laborers absorbed the 5,000 members of National Federation of Independent Unions in 1996. In 1997, New York Local 1199, affiliated with SEIU and later took over SEIU healthcare locals in New York, New Jersey, and Florida. 
1998, the UFCW took over the Brooklyn-based 10,000-member production services and sales district council, and the independent Connecticut Union of Telephone Workers voted to join the communication workers. By 2000, the AFL-CIO had 66 affiliates compared to 150 in 1955. Despite overlapping jurisdictions, some merger talks failed. In 1998, the Independent National Education Association, the largest union in the country, debated merger with the American Federation of Teachers. NEA conservatives who preferred a more professional approach joined liberals who objected to AFT support for U.S. foreign policy and its opposition to community involvement in public education to vote down the proposal. FSCME, SEIU, and the AFT, along with the AFL-CIO's Industrial Union Department, had endorsed bans on discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. In June 1994, the 25th anniversaries of the Stonewall Rebellion, AFSCME's District Council 37 hosted a Stonewall 25-gay labor conference that drew more than 300 labor activists from 25 unions and founded Pride at Work, a national gay labor network. PAW lobbied to become an AFL-CIO constituency group and was recognized by executive councils in August 1997. PA PAW activists found some unions hostile to proposals for domestic partner benefits and coming out of the closet continued to be controversial in many building trades locals. When gay activists campaigned against Hawaii's state constitutional amendment banning same-sex marriages in 1998, only the University of Hawaii Professional Association and the International Longshore and Warehouse Union joined the campaign. Women's issues got more substantial support as Karen Nussbaumer, one-time president of the 995 National Association of Working Women and now director of the AFL-CIO's Working Women's Department, pointed out the Federation had become the country's largest organization of working women. In 1997, the AFL-CIO's Ask Working Women Initiative collected 50,000 survey responses and held meetings and hearings in 20 cities to identify working women's concerns. Equal pay, layoffs, and downsizing, and sick leave were most often listed, and discovered that four out of five women surveyed were interested in collective bargaining. Please share this podcast with your family and friends. If you like our podcast, please rate us on iTunes. It helps others find us. If you would like to contact us, we have various ways to do so in our show notes, along with contact information for the National League of Justice and Security Professionals. Thank you for listening.